You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Partnerships and poverty, new governance for a new world, responsible competitiveness. I first visited Switzerland in 2002 while I was still Director of Sustainability Services for KPMG in South Africa in order to establish contact with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development headquartered in Geneva. I've since returned many times for various meetings on sustainability and CSR hosted by the Academy of Business in Society, Net Impact and others. However, for this episode, much like the last, I want to focus on two fascinating individuals I happened to interview in Switzerland, even though neither is Swiss. I first met Zadek in 1996 while I was completing my Master's in Sustainable Human Ecology, and he was at the New Economics Foundation. Since then, I followed his career and thinking over the years, and our paths have crossed several more times. On this occasion, in August 2008, I had travelled to Geneva to interview Zadik about his book, The Civil Corporation. Reflecting back on the book, which was published in 2001, and on what had changed since, Zadik pointed to the geopolitical shift towards Asia and Russia, the increasing influence of investment markets, the re-emergence of a strong state role, and greater emphasis on partnerships and collaboration. I wondered what had prompted his more recent focus on accountability and responsible competitiveness. The former came out of his work for the New Economics Foundation to work on a theory of organization at scale, and the latter, Zadik explained, emerged largely as a response to the views of David Henderson, expressed in his book Misguided Virtue, false notions of corporate social responsibility. Henderson argued that corporate responsibility increased poverty because it reduced market flexibility and added costs, whereas markets were the route to prosperity. It was a rather caricatured view of everything, claimed Zadig, but the underlying point came through to me, which was, what are the macroeconomic effects? We've all been concentrating on the micro side. Zadik began to realize that micro-level innovation would be halted if the national policy implications of advancing corporate responsibility at the micro-level would undermine national or regional competitiveness. So to understand the political economy of corporate responsibility or sustainability or citizenship, required an understanding where national competitiveness strategies and the political dimensions of that hit the road on this agenda. To illustrate what he meant, Zadik noted that the debate about a post-Kyoto deal was a debate about competitiveness. What's going to prevent it moving on is a zero-sum view about a payoff matrix that is, about a loss of competitiveness at both the top of the economic pyramid and mid and low levels in the pyramid as well. I pushed him to elaborate. Climate change is a perfect storm, he said, 
it is a credible systemic risk accompanied by demonstrable failure of our two primary large-scale instruments of change, namely public policy and capital market allocation. Because public policy is not reshaping markets to be forward-thinking at anything like the pace that's needed, and capital markets are not recognizing the value-added opportunities or factoring them in to their asset valuation methodologies. And so at that point, the importance of collaboration, new models of partnerships, new ways of constructing market rules becomes the game. Collaborative governance. I asked what he means by new models of partnership, and Zadek explained that we need to move business into the rulemaking business. We've been spending a decade and a half experimenting in that with the ethical trade initiatives and the forest stewardship councils and the marine stewardship councils and so on, all very interesting, but the thin end of the wedge is the kind of social compact or political compact that is going to be needed to address the next round if capital markets continue to fail and traditional multilateralism doesn't deliver the goods. I wondered if we're looking also in the wrong place by expecting incumbent large multinationals who are benefiting from the status quo to come up with a solution, be it collaborative or not. What about small entrepreneurial ventures that go to scale? What about the next Google or Facebook, but for sustainability? Zadek agreed that this might work, but only when it's a straight technology solution that the market appreciates. But not, he cautioned, if the market is backward-looking and doesn't incentivize the change, and not if the political economy of the changes are not acceptable to some influential parts of the world. Zadek's conclusion is that new rules will be needed, not just more clean tech. For sure, the clean tech space is exciting and flourishing and emerging every day. But for the innovations to take hold at the scale and pace that we need, we have to encourage the rules of the game. So how do we change the rules of the game? Clearly we don't have the answers yet, but Zadek speculates about how it might unfold. The question is whether, through a mixture of public and private actors, we can create rule systems that help businesses and countries navigate away from first-mover disadvantages in advancing sustainability by creating microclimates within markets that are transborder and offer competitiveness upsides without having to have everybody play ball. If one can advance rule systems that can do that, Either they themselves will move to a system level, or the transaction costs of maintaining them at ever larger scales will eventually trigger statutory regulatory moves at a transborder level. What are the implications of these imperatives, I asked Zadek, for companies interested in sustainable business? The companies that have been most interesting in the sustainability area, he observed, are ones that have tried to create space not only for themselves but for other companies to advance, whether it be responsible drinking, cheaper drugs, improved labour standards or less corruption. Many other companies, Zadek believes, 
have improved their own sustainability practices, but failed to innovate at what he calls the meso-level, in other words, the intra-sector and cross-sector collaborative space. That is also why, according to Zadek, many companies have tried to make a stepwise shift in the approach to their business model and have failed. All this talk about changing the rules of the game made me wonder if Zadek still believes in the civil corporation, especially in light of the growing critique of the version or brand of capitalism the world has been practicing. Is he suggesting that in order for companies to make the necessary changes, we need far more profound changes in capitalism? He answered in three parts. First, the fiduciary model of business is almost done. The primacy of financial stakeholders is not sustainable as an effective basis for achieving success. Second, it doesn't seem to me that our liberal democratic model can survive the challenge of sustainability. It has embedded a short-termism that is a danger and is driving frenzied hedonism as we rush towards the precipice rather than a reflective long-term view as to how to build societies in different ways. Third, we're creating a possible new set of institutional processes that can help us, but that reconverge political and economic power into a single system without the safeguards to maintain them as separate powers that need to balance each other out. Take a trivial example like forestry or marine or labour standards. We are actively bringing business back into the process of political decision-making and legitimising them in the spirit of sustainability. This is tactically the right thing to do, but the potential endgame is profound. These are clearly big issues with big implications. Is Zadek optimistic and hopeful? I feel quite optimistic about the experience of the last decade and a half, he admitted. I think we've experimented in how to create norms in different ways, radically different ways in a global economy where national rules don't work in relation to global institutions, pushed by civil society pressure that didn't exist before. I think we've achieved some extraordinary innovations, there have been some impacts on the ground with real people and real rivers not being polluted. But also I think we've gone through our first phase of learning and that we need to be ready to take the next step. How do we create the next lot at a larger scale and in a more effective way, by implication needing to include some of the new players on the global stage, which has never been done before in those spaces? This will mean, probably, NGOs being less important than they were before, certainly Western brands being less important, and governments being more important, albeit within a non-statutory space. So my hope doesn't come from a sense that amazing things are about to happen, said Zadek, or that human nature is about to change, that global consciousness is about to be formed, that a revolution is about to take place, that technology will solve a problem, or even in a sort of Margaret Mead way, that there's always some fantastic person down the road doing something amazing, which of course is true, but to be frank is not enough. 
My hope comes from my own internal process of trying to understand what's going on and my very direct experience of trying to make change. I think it's through the habit of every day of trying to make change that one maintains an ambition about the possibility. It's the habit of action, of taking risks, of challenging others, of finding a voice. As Ed Mayo, the executive director of the New Economics Foundation, used to say to me, of always getting up in the morning slightly angry at the injustice in the world. Worm's Eye View After speaking to Zadek in Geneva, I took a train through the picturesque Swiss Alps to Gestart, where Muhammad Yunus was speaking at a conference on microfinance, the movement he helped to seed through the example of the Grameen Bank. I was impressed by Yunus's quiet and humble demeanour, all while his passion and determination shines through. I was speaking to him about his book, Banker to the Poor, and more generally about his views on poverty, microcredit, and the role of women. The story of how he founded the Grameen Bank in 1976 after a famine struck Bangladesh is well-worn, and I won't repeat it here. What I would rather share is some of his wisdom. One of the first insights was his emphasis on what he calls the worm's eye view of the world. All this academic life that I had all these years gave me kind of a bird's eye view, he explained. I can see the whole world, I can see the terrain, but I don't see the details. And since I don't know the details, I make up those details in my imagination. Now, coming to the village, I see the details in very, very clear terms. I don't have the global perspective, but I know the person's daily routine, what she is eating today, what her hope is for tomorrow, what disasters befall her family. I said, oh my God, what I'm getting now is the worm's eye view. Then something hit me and I said, this is an advantage. If you have the worm's eye view, then you can find the solution right away. So I think it's much more powerful than just being up in the sky and speculating about things. Part of Eunice's worm's eye view perspective was a gradual realization that microfinance works best when the loans are given to women. To start with, Grameen Bank was only aiming for parity between loans to men and women, which took them six years to achieve. Then we started noticing, said Eunice, that money going to the family through women brought so much more benefit to the family, so we gradually changed our policy. And today, with 7.5 million borrowers, 97% are women. Explaining why this might be the case, Eunice said, women have certain features in her character, in her being, which is convenient for achieving the goals that microcredit wants to achieve. As soon as she makes money, her first attention is to the children. And women have a longer vision. She wants to get out of this miserable situation as fast as she can. She is the best manager of scarce resources. She is very careful with the money we give her. And it changes the society, bringing empowerment to women, because she is always neglected, always ignored. Now she has a bank account. She owns a bank. She has her savings. And she is an income generator. So self-confidence 
and dignity comes back to her. Social business rising. Relating to this business, I was curious to know if the bottom of the pyramid strategies, so-called BOP markets, popularized by C.K. Prahalad and Stuart Hart, were also taking us some way towards this worm's eye view. To the contrary, Eunice is quite critical of BOP strategies. I see now that the businesses are trying to discover a new world of poor people, and I feel uncomfortable with that kind of attitude because it promotes the idea that you can make money. It's not about getting them out of that situation. You want to make yourself rich out of people who live there. The bottom of the pyramid is a challenge for humanity, how to raise them out of that level that they're in. The pyramid will always be there, but the bottom shouldn't be as miserable as it is today. So our primary responsibility is to lift them, rather than to see it as an opportunity to make money. Eunice was not only critical about the attitude implicit in BOP strategies, but also the rationale that selling things to the poor will bring them out of poverty. We should not look at them as consumers of our products, he suggests. We should see them as potential producers, potential creative people who can take charge of their own life and transform it. And our role is to be presenting ourselves into a supportive role. And that's where I talk about the social businesses. Business not for making money, business to change the world, to change people's lives. I asked him to elaborate on this idea of a social business. It is a non-loss, non-dividend company with a social objective, he explained. Today, economic theory presents the human being as a single-dimensional being. All you enjoy is making money. That's a misinterpretation of the human being. To represent the totality of the human being, we have to have at least two kinds of business. One which is concentrated to me, another which is totally dedicated to others. So a profit-maximizing business is a means to make money, to expand, to grow. And then social business is the end. What do I do with the money? I want to change the world. I want to change people's lives. And that's where I put the signature on this planet. This is what I have done. Making tons of money doesn't give me the right to be remembered in this world. Eunice's intergenerational perspective on sustainability was perhaps what I took away most from the interview. He said, We are not plunderers on this planet, we are residents. This is our house, and we want to make it safe. We want to make it beautiful, for when we hand it over to our next generation. And the next generation's job will be to make it more beautiful and more safe when they hand it over to the next generation. We're doing the reverse. We're making it worse. That's not a way to go, so we have to reverse that process. And reversing that process, in Eunice's view, includes nothing short of ending poverty. I'm totally convinced that we can create a world where there'll be no more poor person at all, he says. People have unlimited potential to change their own life and contribute to this planet, but unfortunately they aren't given a chance. 
all we are doing through microcredit is removing the barrier that society has created. Once the barrier is out of the way, they will come out of poverty. It's like coming out of prison. You just unlock the door and they come out. You don't have to go in and drag them out. So this is the situation and it's happening in many, many countries. Now we have to bring all our energy to get rid of this last bit of poor people that we have on this planet and declare country by country that we are free from poverty from now on. And then create poverty museums so anyone who wants to see poverty should go and visit the museum.